Well, thank you so very much for that, and thank you, Dr. Patterson, for your, I started to say, kind introduction, for your introduction. Uh, it is a thrill to be here. Just seven months ago, June the 2nd, uh, Diana Barber, formerly Mrs. Wayne Barber, Wayne was the men's teacher for Precept Upon Precept, and uh, also pastor in Chattanooga, Tennessee, as well as previously in in, uh, at Hoffmantown Baptist Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Passed away after 47 years of their marriage of Lou Gehrig's disease. And uh, I was a man struggling for a year and a half after his wife of 49 years had passed away. And through an amazing series of circumstances only God could have organized, uh, we were joined together in wedlock. We had actually met 33 years earlier in Salzburg, Austria, sound of music town. And uh, we could write a novel about how we, how we met. The mistake I made, not really a mistake, was that uh, I called Mrs. Patterson and said, is there a place on the campus where if I brought my kids in, we could have a wedding? Well, from that moment on, I was out of control. And... Uh, I have been, as I told some of the campus crew here earlier today, I've been in two county fairs and to a fifth Sunday singing, but I ain't never seen anything like the wedding shindig that uh, took place that day. Thank you, Mrs. Patterson. And all the rest of you all, there were hundreds, I'm sure, who were involved in that, but we had a, a wonderful beginning to uh, our marriage, and it has been blissfully uh, and enjoyably wonderful ever since. And uh, I want you to meet Diana. Diana, would you stand, please? And uh, this is my bride of seven months. Let me just say to you that I wish that the president of Southwestern, when I was attending, who was Dr. Naylor, I wish that he had the same policy Dr. Patterson has regarding coming. I heard him distinctly say that if it endangered me in any way to come to school, that I was excused from classes. Now, during those days, I pastored over in, uh, in Dallas and uh, stayed up late every night studying for school and got up early in the morning to drive over here, and so it endangered me every morning <laughs> to, uh, to come to classes here. I would have called in just about every day. Thank you, Dr. Patterson, for the privilege, the humbling privilege of sharing once again in chapel here. Let me ask you, if you will, please to open your Bible to the 12th chapter of the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12. I, I preach on this with fear and trembling, knowing that Dr. Allen uh, has written a commentary on Hebrews, and he's going to be upset because of what I say. It will vastly improve his thinking about Hebrews when I'm finished, I'm sure. I, um, I'd like to just say a few words about the treatment of the text before we look at it together this morning. Uh, you know, when a preacher preaches, he's like an attorney arguing a case before a jury. He's arguing for a verdict. And I am arguing, I'm preaching this morning for a verdict on your part. And that is that you would approach your life in Christ as you are exhorted to do in the passage of Scripture that is our text this morning. Now, of course, because this is a school which focuses on text-driven preaching, for which uh, I would 
urge and, uh, well, I commend you and I urge you to follow that practice, we're going to deal with it in that fashion. I've often said that it, uh, when you deal properly with the passage of Scripture, it's, it's sort of like this, if I could use this illustration, which I think I've used here before. If I wanted to nurture you and I had the only thing I had was an orange, I would hold it up before you. You would recognize it immediately as an orange. And I don't want to jam the whole thing down your, your throat at once. And so the first thing I would do would be to take back the, the, the rind of that orange. Think with me about the context of a passage of Scripture, which is so very important. And then in the case of the orange, you would see that it was rather neatly divided, uh, uh, perhaps more neatly than, than some passage of Scripture that you read. But there it is. It is very neatly divided. And then you just simply let it fall apart, and I would take one bite at a time and nurture you with that. Well, that's what we want to do this morning. And before we look at the text, let me just, let me just say that uh, the text, of course, has a context. And the author of Hebrews has, in the previous chapter, uh, he has told us about the men and women, heroes of the faith, as a means of illustrating what faith is. And he reminds us in the 11th chapter of Hebrews that faith is not merely something you think. And faith is not merely having strong feelings or convictions about what you think. But at the bottom line, faith is acting on the revealed will of God. Uh, I won't take the time to read chapter 11, but I remind you that, that there's all these active verbs, Abel offered, Enoch walked, Noah prepared an ark, Abraham went out, Jacob and Isaac blessed, Moses forsook. There is always an action. Jesus followed this pattern. He could have stood at the outskirts of any town in Galilee, I suppose, and pronounced people healed. He could have even singled out what people he wanted to heal. But instead, he went to them and and as an expression of their faith, he said, you stretch out your hand. You men take up your bed and walk. You, 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 you go show the priest. Uh, tell them about this. There was always this attendant activity. And so chapter 12 begins in like manner. As you have read about these, what shall I more say, he, said, he writes. Time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and he begins to tell about all that they went through as an expression of their faith. So in the same manner, and the central idea of the text, for those of you who are in class right now, the central idea of the text is let us run. So look at the, at the passage, if you would, just for a moment. Wherefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses, speaking of those he's written about in the previous chapter, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with patient endurance the race that is set before us looking unto Jesus the author and finisher of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For he says consider him who endured such hostility such contradiction of sinners against himself unless you also grow weary and and give up hope faint in your mind 
And then he leaps into this great passage which has to do with uh, the discipline of our life by saying, listen, in case you think you're something on a stick, let me remind you that you have not yet resisted unto blood, unto death, striving against sin. So everything he says in this passage in some way qualifies that exhortation, let us run. And I would say to you this morning that your approach and my approach to the Christian life ought to be that we are to run it, not to meander, not to poke along, not to mosey, not to saunter, but it is a life to be run. Someone who's famous at this school because of his uh, philanthropy and because of his interest is a man by the name of Orville Rogers. He's a mentor of mine. It's because he came up to Oklahoma City some months after my wife passed away and sat on a park bench. By the way, he drove up in his brand new red Camaro. That might not mean much to you, but at that time he was 98 years of age. You talk about endangering people on your way to school. He, he was night at then. Just this past week, he told me he had done well in his echocardiogram, and so he's going to go to Maryland and run some races, the 60, the 600, and the 1,500-meter race. Can you imagine? He is now 100 years of age. His approach to life is that it ought to be run. I have a, I have a grandson who is a... Uh, uh, he, he took third place in the Ironman in Cozumel. And he approaches life in the same way. It is to be run. Well, we are to approach the Christian life that way. Let us run. Now, notice, if you will, as we just let the, the orange fall apart, notice the six qualifiers that we are given in this, the first few verses of chapter 12 that we are given to this urgent exhortation, let us run. First of all, he says, let us run in the cloud that surrounds us. Wherefore, seeing we are encompassed with so great a cloud of witnesses. Now, that, that begs the question, who are these witnesses? Well, obviously, he is referring to those uh, uh, that are enlisted in, in this previous chapter. And there are perhaps others who have died since then. But these are in that great cloud of witnesses. Uh, what kind of witnesses are they? Well, I would suggest this morning that, um, of course, because we are given the idea that this is in a stadium, you might think of them as witnesses of us, although I think that is a very weak point if you're going to argue it from, from Scripture, that, that people who are now in present heaven have nothing more to do than to stand at the parapets of heaven and lean over and watch you. I would, I would encourage you to understand that they, there is a lot more for them to be doing right now in heaven than, than watching us. That's, that is a weak argument. There, there is some, perhaps, truth to that. But more than likely, he is saying that they are witnesses to us. That is, that trusting, giving God your all is worth staking your life. And he's saying these are people who gave themselves to follow the Lord. They are witnesses to us that Christ is worth everything. I would suggest also that the language indicates that they are witnesses with us. We are surrounded by this cloud of witnesses. When 
My grandson's family goes to watch him run these Ironman contests. By the way, his third place time was 11 hours and 40 minutes of running and swimming and biking. I don't even want to think about it. It makes me tired thinking about it. But I will tell you that when his family goes to cheer him on, they, they literally try to run with him. In fact, the day before, they stake out a route so that they can meet him at different places along the way to encourage him when he dives in the water, when he gets, mounts the bike, when he starts running. They're there at the, at the starting line. They're there at the finish line, but they're there all the way through. And so these are, these are witnesses who run, who run with us, I think, in some way. But then the question, it begs this question, what difference should that make in the way you run that is in this cloud of witnesses? When I was in high school, I was a distance runner. I know you looked at my physique and immediately you spotted that. You said, that guy, he is a distance runner. I know. You could tell, couldn't you? Well, I wasn't a very good one then, and I'm certainly not one now. But I remember... Um, a race that we ran when I was in high school. Um, the, it was on homecoming day, and it was during the game that night, and, and uh, it, was, it started raining, and then it began to sleet, and it was just so cold. And they were trying to, you know, crown the homecoming queen and king, and they had all this taking place. And all the time, we were running this race. I mean, nobody cared about these guys and their shorts running around in the sleet. And they, they could hardly pay attention to what was going on for trying to keep themselves covered. And so here I was in this race, and I didn't want to be running it, and I, I, I was about, I think, about fifth or sixth, maybe seventh place back. And I, I, I realized that I was way out of my league here, and I was doing the best I could until I came around the last bend, and I looked up in the stadium, and there in the stands at the top was my mother, green coat, green felt hat, and I knew for her to get there, had taken momentous energy on her, but she had to ride the bus across Kansas City, Missouri, get off of the bus, walk through the sleet to the stadium, get a ticket, climb up to the top of the bleachers so that she could watch her little skinny 120-pound son run this race. That was a witness to me of a loving mother. When I saw her, I turned on the afterburner I mean, I, I do not know where the energy came from, but I passed the sixth guy and then the fifth guy and then the, I do not know where the energy came from. And then the fourth guy and the second guy, I thought to myself, man, I don't know what, the, and I passed the first place guy and I got about 20 yards in front of the, I was in first place when I rounded the last bend headed toward the finish line only to hear the coach say, you got one more lap, LF, you got one more lap. And I just, I ran out of gas. I have no idea where I finished, but it did something to me to know that that lady who had walked through the sleet and the rain was standing there because she cared for me. Let us run in the cloud that surrounds us. Let us run from the choices that seduce us. Notice he says, let us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. This requires, this requires in some way restraint. Every sin which, every encumbrance. If there are some things in your life that are not sin, but your attachment to them can become sin. Uh, earlier in my 
uh, pastoral ministry, I, uh, with the encouragement of some of our church members who didn't have anything else to do apparently, I, I fell in love with golf. Now, there's nothing wrong with golf. I love it. It's a principled game. And I, I began to, what was wrong was I began to think of myself as a golfer. Of course, my major rule was don't pick up a lost ball until it stops rolling. But I, 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 I fell in love with golf. And, and I, 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 you know, it was sort of a, a testimony to God's sense of humor where I got to play five times. I, I was privileged to play on the Augusta National where they play the Masters course. I, I mean, I, I just fell in love with this. But then God called me to a different responsibility to work with our missionaries. And I began to realize that my love affair with golf needed to be ended. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with using any kind of a hobby in a measured fashion, unless it's a sinful hobby, but your attachment to it can become sinful. Now, it's no big deal that I haven't touched clubs in 12 years. But it would have been a big deal and a sin if I'd gotten off a plane in Ethiopia to meet our missionaries and said, just a minute, I'm waiting on my clubs to come around on the carousel. Let's lay aside every encumbrance and the sin. Now, there are things that are just outright sin. And you know what yours are. They're the sins that so easily entangle you. You, you make your resolve. You say, I'll, I'm, I'm through with that. But almost as if you're saying those words, it's as if you can hear in your inner ear, oh, I'll wait for you at the next corner. I'll see you tomorrow night. You know that you'll come back. And so this involves not only restraint, it involves living the life of a repenter. So we must run from the choices that seduce us. We must run on the course that is set before us. He said, let us run with patient endurance the race that is set before us. We must run on the course that God has, first of all, designed for us, and second law in law has designed it in such a way that it's demanding of us. We must run with patience the race that is set before us. It was in chapel here at Southwestern. You know, I, I'm so grateful for this school. Thirteen of my immediate family members have attended uh, Southwestern Seminary, and all the way from my father down to my grandson. And I'm so grateful for this school. And some of the most profound moments occurred here in chapel. And I remember hearing a man say that I ought to approach where I was at that moment. I was pastoring this church in Dallas, Texas. And he was saying to all of us as students, he said, you need to approach where you are right now as if it's the last place you're ever going to be. Because only then will you develop the kind of relationships and establish the kind of discipline and exercise the kind of determination and live the kind of life you need to live to be a man of God. That changed my thinking because I had friends who, who, like me, thought, well, where I am right now is not where I'm going to be. 
And if you're not careful, you'll just breeze through those moments where some of the most wonderful people you will ever meet who took the time to invest in you, to listen to you, some of those people will be ignored because you're on your way someplace else. There's so many people who, who wish they were running somebody else's course. They're looking in this lane. They won't stay in their lane. That, that lane looks downhill. Mine looks uphill. That lane looks so smooth. Mine has obstacles in it. You must run the, with patience the race that is set before you. It's not an easy race. I have a friend in North Africa who gets up every morning and faces the day to run the race living in a compound where his father also lives. You say, well, that's no big deal in that society. You would do that. In that culture, you would do that. Oh, you need to understand that, that um, uh, one morning, he, as he was reading the scripture, the Injil, to his 12-year-old daughter, his father passed by and looked in and then nodded and walked on. And the man went to work. And when he came home, he discovered that his father had killed his 12-year-old daughter. And God has used that man to father one of the fastest-growing church planting movements on the globe right now. But he has to run this race, that course, running in that lane. And so we must run not only in the cloud and from the choices, but we must run on the course that is set before us. And we must run to the Christ who has saved us. Looking, literally the word there, squinting, narrowing your vision, looking unto Jesus, the author, and finish of your faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Looking to Jesus because of who he is, because of what he did, because of why he did it, and because of where he is right now. On, um, on the street where we live, I'm known as the man who can teach boys how to ride a bike without falling down. In fact, we were driving down the the street the other day, and I pointed out to Diane, I said, see that man, he's a, a young boy, he's a teenager now. I said, I taught him how to ride his bike. And I remember his mother was chasing him down the street all out of breath, and, and she, he was falling over time and again and crying. And I rolled down the window of the car, and I said, hey, uh, uh, would you like me to teach your son how to ride a bike without falling over? And she said, <laughs> she said somebody's going to have to. It's obvious I can't. And so I got out of the car, and I knelt down beside the boy, and I said, would you like to ride your bike without falling over? And he snubbed a little bit and said, yes. And I said, I'm gonna, I want to tell you what my dad told me. And getting down eye level with him, I said, you're looking down. You're watching out for the rocks and the street and the curb. Here's what I want you to do. Get on this bike. I'm going to push you off. See that car way down there at the end of the street? I want you to keep, keep your eyes on. Do not look down. Keep your eyes on that car. He got on his bike, rode all the way to the end of the street. I, I can't remember, but I remember when my dad taught me how to do that, I ran into the car. <laughs> but focus is everything. And so he says, looking unto the Christ who saved you because of who he is, what he did, why he did it, and where he is right now. 
So we must run in the cloud and we must run from the choices. We must run on the course. We must run to the Christ and then we must run with the charge that sustains us. Notice what he says here. Consider, roll over and over. Take this, think about it again and again. Consider him who endured such contradiction against himself, lest you also grow weary and faint in your mind. Give up hope. You've seen people who give up hope, haven't you? I've, I've seen them in the boxing ring. All of a sudden, you know, hope is gone. And from that point on, the posture is merely defense. I've seen it on the football field. Here's this underdog team which, which was doing its best and surprisingly staying in the match until then there was the field gold and then there was the, extra the next touchdown. And when they came out, after the out of the huddle, you could tell it. They had lost hope. They had given up. They were going to be one more team beat by the champions. He says, if you want to be a person who loses hope, who gives up, you forget Jesus. But think about him. All that he endured what he did, why he did it. Think about him. Consider him who did such hostility. You think you've got it bad? Jesus was dying as the people for whom he was dying mocked him. Consider him who endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you grow weary and faint in your mind. That's where it all, and some of you right now, you're thinking, I'm going to go back and resign. I'm going to, I, this is not for me. I think I'm going to, you see, that's why so many people want to do something other than pastor because pastoring is hard work. Consider him who endured such contradiction of sinners against himself unless you grow weary and give up hope. So let us run in the cloud that surrounds us. Let us run from the choices that seduce us. Let us run on the course set before us. Let us run to the Christ who has saved us. Let us, let us run with the charge that sustains us. And finally, let us run without the complaining that sidelines us. Notice this next verse 4, which... It begins this wonderful passage that has to do with the disciplines of a Christian life with which if you work out with them, it will yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness. But notice what he says. You have not yet resisted to the point of blood striving against sin. Think of it this way. He's saying, you had not died yet. You haven't given for your life. Others have. You haven't. Once again in this chapel, in the other building at that time, but in this in chapel at Southwestern, I looked from my balcony seat down to the man standing behind, I believe, this pulpit, David Fight, who had only recently been released from prison in Cuba, Southern Baptist missionary. And he said, as I was in a cell, water on the floor, I could, the cell was so small I could not stretch out. I said, dear God, what is all this about? I'm a missionary. You were blessing our work in Cuba, and now I've been arrested under Castro's regime, and I'm locked. What good? What can I do? 
And there came that day, he said, when I, when I was taken from that cell, first of all, to a shower where I was to, 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 to wash off. And he said, I, I could hardly see, but he said, I looked up on the wall and a man had taken his thumb and he had scratched in the clay wall of that shower his name. And then underneath it, there was a date. And then underneath that, it said, condemned to die. And then underneath that, he had written, for me to live as Christ, to die as gain. And David Fite said that changed everything. And he began to tell how God had used him to see one man after another come to know Jesus in a Cuban prison. What are you complaining about? You, you haven't died yet. Why are you complaining? What, what's your problem? Two of our daughters and their husbands and families are, one is soon going back as strategy leader for Southeast Asia, but another one of our daughters and her husband lived for 12 years in Cambodia. He was asked once when he was uh, visiting a village, they said, hey, you, you need to come up here. We've got a problem. And he went to see one of the pastors he had trained They said, he's had terrible persecution. He said, this, this pastor came out from behind his house. He had a broken arm, probably a shattered cheek. Bruised all over his body, had been beaten by the villagers, including his parents and his grandparents. And they sat down together, and this pastor, Roat, said, David... David, teach me, what do you do in America? How, how do you respond when people persecute you like this for your faith? And David said, I, I said, well, they, they don't persecute us like that for our faith. He said, well, well uh, is that because everybody in America is a Christian? And David said, no. He said, but they love Christians. That's why. He said, well, not exactly. And he said, I don't understand. He said, well, you see, there's a, there's a kind of Christianity in America where people, um, they do almost anything to keep from being criticized or having persecution. And this Cambodian pastor bent double and said, oh God, may that never happen in my country. Five years later, having come home, serving as a pastor, he went back to Cambodia, went back to that village, met Roat, looked at him. Now almost the entire village has come to know Christ. He is his parents' pastor and his grandparents' pastor. What are you complaining for? You hadn't died yet, and others did. Brothers and sisters, let us run, not saunter, not poke around, not, not meander, not mosey. This is the life that we have on this earth. 
Let us run in the cloud that surrounds us and from the choices that seduce us. Let us run with the charge that sustains us. Let us us run to the Christ who has saved us on the course set before us. And let us run without the complaining that would sideline us. But above all, let us run. God bless the truth of this charge to your life this morning.